Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show on the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media, is brought to you by World Central Kitchen. Their relief team is working across America to safely distribute individually packaged fresh meals in communities that need support. They're now serving tens of thousands of meals daily in some of the biggest cities like New York and Los Angeles, and they're launching initiatives across America to deliver fresh, hot meals to hospitals and clinics fighting on the front lines while keeping local restaurants in business as well. You can directly help the heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us, and you can help keep your local restaurants alive. Go to theringer.com slash WCK to donate, please. We're trying to raise $250,000. And if you have the means, it's an unbelievably great and useful cause that helps our hospital heroes, emergency workers, and local restaurants. Please give whatever you can. The money goes directly to World Central Kitchen, and it's a charitable donation. Once again, that's theringer.com slash WCK, the World Central Kitchen, theringer.com slash WCK from my friend Jose Andres, who started this organization. It's truly one of the good things that you can trust that they're going to be taking your money that you give to them to the people that need it most. And uh, I'm telling you guys, this is a very important organization even before COVID-19. And right now, more than ever, it demands your support. So please, please, if you can, support World Central Kitchen. So theringer.com slash WCK. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Thank you to Yola Tango, as always, for letting us use their music in the introduction. We have our second series in the Too Small to Fail podcast series that we're doing, talking about the repercussions of COVID-19 in the hospitality industry. And I think at large, small business in general, independent small business in America, and actually not just America, because I think we're going to talk to chefs and, and friends in Italy, in Japan, in Korea, and so forth. But one of the guests that I wanted to make sure that everyone heard from was the CEO of Momofuku, Marguerite Mariscal, who graced us a few months back when she became the CEO of Momofuku. And um, there was a great article in the New York Times business section about that promotion. And she is full of wisdom. And uh, I think age has nothing to do with it. And I maintain that for us to get older and more mature, we had to get younger with Marguerite at the helm. And uh, I love her dearly because she has really endured a lot as we all have for the past month. But we've been talking about this trolley car problem over and over and over again, where whatever decision you make between two decisions, uh, no matter how badly you want both outcomes to be great, you have to make a decision between you know, outcomes that are more than likely going to be terrible. And you have to sort of choose the lesser of two. And Marge, I think, has done the best she possibly could have, and the team behind her at Momofuku to navigate what was something we could not really have prepared for. And Chris Ying joined us, and we just had a, a quick conversation about where we're at, what Marge is thinking. And it was weird for me, which is why I'm glad Marge was talking to Chris, because usually it's easier to talk to someone I don't know and to not be so subjective. So it was great to have Chris sort of speak to Marge. And uh, 
if there's been a positive in these horrible times, it's been because I get to speak to her on a near daily basis and to see the resolve and determination she has to see what might come out on the other side. And I spoke to Marshall Goldsmith and a couple other people that I think have, you know, are helping out a lot of leaders in this world today and other people that I know. And I said, we need to really figure out how to redeploy our resources, not just people that are underprivileged or needed help, even in the good times. We need to make sure that we're supporting the next generation of leaders to make sure that they have all the resources and tools because they're going to need it because they're going to be the individuals they get out of this. And uh, if Momofugu gets out of this, it's not going to be because of me. It's going to be because of the leadership of Marguerite Mariscal. So I, I will stop talking and let you guys hear the conversation with uh, the CEO of Momofuku, Marguerite Marisco. Marguerite, can you just walk us through as best you can the last few weeks from what's been happening on your end as CEO of Momofuku, just starting with the first time you realized coronavirus was going to be a issue for the restaurants? Sure. Uh, so I think when it started, obviously, uh, we had heard a lot coming out of, uh, of China and, you know, we're making plans. I think the plans initially were not serious enough, right? It was, okay, let's, uh, ramp up delivery. Let's figure out what we can do out of home. Um, because sales had been declining through February already, you know, and that's a lot of factors. It's the slowest season for restaurants, but it was clearly mounting. And by the time you got to, uh, the first week of March, the second week of March, you are already, uh, you know, between 30 and 40% down. Um, so I would say that that was kind of like the slow roll up to it. Um, we made the decision, uh, on March 14th to just close the restaurants, uh, all of our wholly owned restaurants that we had the ability to just shut the doors, we did. Um, because I think we saw really what this was going to become and we didn't want to be uh, kind of dragging along trying to make it work when the reality was at the end of the day, the safest thing for everyone was to just close the restaurants, get everyone home. Uh, that process was a little longer with our partner restaurants. So we have a lot of uh, deals in, let's say, Las Vegas uh, or uh, outside of the U.S., like uh, in Toronto, where um, we're working with a partner. So we have to kind of figure out not only closing with those local regulations and, and government uh, officials, as well as our business partners, and then what happens to those employees afterwards. So negotiating uh, severance payments, negotiating who's staying on the payroll. So those process happened over maybe the following week, if not uh, two weeks, uh, Sayobo and Sydney, uh, they weren't mandated to close down until March 23rd. So um, it was kind of just uh, every single day, new, new factors, um, you know, making really, really, really tough decisions, I would say, uh, you know, decisions that maybe typically, you know, we were thinking about making six months from now became, you know, decisions that we had to make in, in the next hour. So, um, you know, the Dave and I always talk about a naked gun. There's like the scene where Nordberg gets like shot at and then his foot is in like the, the bear, uh, trap and then he falls over the side of a boat. And I feel like every day was just like, punch in the face over and over again. And, and some of those punches being self-inflicted, right? Like we had to make some really hard decisions, uh, um, but it didn't make it any easier. Can you talk about that 
first big decision, what you, what you just said about acting early and not dragging along. I mean, I think this is the the trolley car problem that Dave has described numerous times on his podcast, and and I think every restaurant owner in the world, I mean, really is facing of of whether to try to cling on and make the money you can or or what what is what is that decision and and can you talk a little bit about your thought process there sure so i i think you know the reality is that everyone's kind of dealing with a finite amount of funds right uh when are you going to run out of money and how long can you keep this business going so the reason that we made kind of maybe premature decisions um uh, especially I would say, you know, in New York, I don't think anyone saw it as preemptive, right? You already had kind of some mandates coming down from the government, not full shutdowns, but 50% capacities, things like that. Um, but I think it was for LA, which kind of trailed a bit on that front a, a little bit felt rash. Um, but for us, we kind of looked at not only our employee safety, but also how much money do we have? And we, we weighed the option of either kind of hanging in there and, and keep going, knowing that when we did need to let employees go, we might not have the funds to give them compensation. We might have the ability to let them plan. So we decided to make decisions quicker, knowing that we could offer a week, two weeks, three weeks severance to people, as opposed to trying to drag along where you might be put into a compromising position where you don't have the luxury of planning that out. And for the luxury, I mean, something that I think about all the time of communication, right? Your ability to, to you know, one of the hardest parts I think about all of this is we closed down the restaurants on on uh, that Saturday, uh, March 14th. And we then had to make the tough decision to lay off teams. And typically you would want that to be an in-person conversation, right? Like these are your employees, some of which worked with you for a very long time. The last thing you want to do is get onto a phone call and have that conversation. But we had to based on just safety concerns. Like the worst thing we could have possibly done is brought everyone into the restaurant uh, and, and made this mass announcement because it would just then, to your point on the trolley car, it just compromises people in another way. So, uh, you know, having to have those conversations the way that we had to have them as early as we had to have them, you know, we just tried our best to be as prepared, have FAQs for any potential questions, um, you know, just just doing what we thought we could. But um you know, I, I think we just thought it's better to to go into that knowing what we can do than than play roll the dice and and not know. Chang, can you paint a picture of of what those days were like for both of you guys for the whole company? Every, I'm sure you were having these conversations with Marge and and the team there just about what to do. do can you recall what that was like um, leading up to closing? Um. Yeah, it was weird, number one, not being with everybody. Um, and I was away. And I know that Marge and some of the core team were remaining in the office. And this is way before uh, de Blasio or anyone said a stay-at-home order. This is probably two weeks before that even was uh, issued. And uh, um, I was we were filming the show. Uh, we, You know, Chris and I work on the, the Hulu show with uh, in Vox and, and filming this Chrissy Teigen show. And it was hard for me to be away. And, uh, I just, I wish I was in the room with them, but I also knew that they were working diligently, making the right decisions. And I could just, I just knew before I left, we were trying our best to come up with the worst case scenario contingency plans, right? You know, Marge alluded to having delivery, you know, what would be the bare minimum kind of menus uh, we could do. We even figured out 
Uh, we could have some restaurants be as uh, serving as grocery stores and so on and so forth. And um, coming to that decision of closing, actually, if my, my memory recalls correctly, Margie, it was pretty easy, right? Not easy, but it was like, once we saw that we could get people yeah. sick, it wasn't like, ah, yes, we had done a lot of work to stay open. We had done a considerable amount of work to develop menus and to move resources around so we could be doing what John and Vinny's in LA is doing or what Grant and Nick Akonis are doing in Chicago. Um, but we felt uh, we had to, we never like erring on the side of caution with the exception of employee safety. And it was a super easy call for us to do as hard as it was. And that's when I think it led to, I think Marge and I, I know Marge was, I just remember calling, making a decision. And then like a day later, like, it was a lot of tears because we're saying the safety of employees, but it's also like, well, the safety of their employees is being jeopardized if they can't pay rent, if they're going to not have, you know, certain things that need to be granted, you know, covered for them. And that's what ripped me up. Um, and at the time, I just remember calling Marge a lot, just trying to keep her spirits up. I think it was... It really gutted me because I would have never have given her the responsibility at her age. And age got nothing to do with it. I, I wouldn't want anyone to have to go through what she had to go through. And I would rather have been me. Um, and it, that, number one, is what crushed me the most because Marge just wants to make everyone happy. We all do. And knowing that we were going to make a decision that was going to be roundly criticized. I don't mind how many people. But um, we had to, and and we had a plan in place for a lot of different things, and and uh, I just remember it being a blur, quite frankly, a lot of calling to a variety of people, and a lot of crying. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of crying, March. <laughs> March, like I, I've known you for a long time now, and and you're you're very even keeled, and and you know when Dave, you know, told me he was going to appoint you CEO or the board was going to appoint you CEO. I was like, it made so much sense because you're so um, calm and collected and, and rational with these things. But uh, I mean, what, what, what Dave just said, like how many times have you cursed him for giving you this job right now at this moment of all moments? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think I'm, I feel lucky to be in a position to make some of these decisions, right? I mean, you have to think about the alternative of, you know, if it's someone else, where are they going to make the right call or what, you know, Dave and I think is the right call. Um, yeah. I mean, I think Dave, like there's one time I called Dave crying and Dave was like, I've cried twice today. <laughs> like only once, you know, I think it was just kind of, uh, I, I think, I think it, it's correct. Like that, you know, you want to make decisions that make people happy. And I think the thing that has been the hardest about this entire process has just been, there's no one decision that makes anyone happy. Any decision is going to have a reverse reaction to certain people fairly, right? Like you might make the decision to close because of safety, but you're also making that decision for someone else who might not agree with you and you're taking away their ability to earn um, and provide. And so no decision that we were making, uh, regardless of the size, was something that unilaterally uh, everyone would agree with. and. Um, I think it's just hard to like, we're such a human business, like in restaurants, like, you know, I, 
spend all of my time at the office, in the restaurants, and to make these decisions, you know, on a phone call with someone where you can't even like see their reaction, uh, or as I said, communicating to staff that they're going to be let go and doing that, you know, not even seeing their face is like mind blowing to me, right? So it's not just the decisions that are being made and how tough they are, but the lack then of like, uh, empathy that, you know, you can provide outside of compensation and guidance and all these pieces, um, is just so like antithetical in some ways to, the industry or, or like why I do what I do and why Dave does what he does. And uh, so that's just been like, obviously by no means is it equal to the hardship of, of the people that were let go and, and all and what they're dealing with. But uh, just, I don't know, I just got to points where I felt like every decision was a lose lose. Uh, and it was very hard to see silver lining or if you did, maybe you would see it two months from now, three months from now, but you know, there's no gratification in anything that, uh, we're doing with, with, with few exceptions. And, and I think Chris, one of the things that was hard and, and I know that I heard, you know, I didn't hear, but it was told to me that people wanted from our team and they rightfully wanted better communication for a Marge and, and to a lesser degree me. And I just was like, this is hard because not just hard, impossible. Marge, Marge was just trying to process everything. And I think we were all scared and we'd be lying if we weren't absolutely terrified. And how do you project an image of confidence and leadership when we're, we're, we literally don't know what's going to happen the next day or two months from now? And I think that was what was the hardest thing. It's the same thing Corey said in the podcast. People come to us with 100 questions, and we can give them an answer 99 times and be right most of the time. It's a horrible thing to be able to tell people, I have no idea. Yeah, I think I think that, and I, I would say also like uh, immediately following the closure, uh, and I think you saw this across the board nationally. There was also, I think, just uh, uh, people wanted to move so quickly, right? People wanted answers, people wanted solutions, and so um, whether it's uh, employee funds. Um, setting up that infrastructure, setting up delivery infrastructure. Everyone for that first two weeks was just running, racing, trying to get something up. And, you know, the way that we do things at, at Momofuku is, you know, for example, like we were faced with things like, okay, you can start an employee fund, but unless you're a nonprofit, uh, you know, the at worst, the tax implications are going to be like a bonus if you're giving out money. And at best, it's treated as wages. And so those tax treatments for the employees are not great. And, you know, every day we were kind of like, well, do we just do it because it's money going to employees and that's more important than finding a long-term solution that makes it, uh, you know, a hundred percent, uh, you know, tax-free. Um, and, you know, every day just felt, you know, more and more like, are we being idiots for trying to do this in the best possible way versus, you know, is that extra five hours with the lawyer going to actually equate to positive change for our teams? And so every day just felt like this, you know, right. uh, patch 22. Um, and I think finally, um, you know, I think we're starting to see some of the fruits of that labor uh, by getting the Momo Fund uh, uh, 5013C. So now it can be uh, 100% uh, tax-free, all those things. But, you know, when you didn't know, right, when you didn't know where that was going to net out, uh, how much do you just move forward for the sake of moving forward versus, you know, trying to get to that ideal solution that might not come? Can, can I just add one thing about an example of a moral dilemma and whether people can empathize with it or not? I, I, I don't know. 
but like talking about this fun, it was not something that I think we we wanted to do because we understood the public perception of it because we're a big restaurant group and we have a lot of employees. And I think we were fully aware of, well, you know, a lot of the people that might donate money to this would donate money to like our friends that have restaurants, then they have one restaurant or two restaurants and it's a small business. And it was, it was impossible because simultaneously we're getting feedback from our managers and chefs saying like, why is everyone else having these funds? How come you're not doing something? And it wasn't that we weren't trying, we had things planned out, but we wanted to, we just, it was so hard. And I think that what I wanted to say is this is, I think the worst thing we could do is be managers. And I think managers wait for a solution to come to them. And I've always long held the belief that, you know, we put margin in place to make decisions under duress. And it's something I told you over and over, Marge, during that week. We may look back at this decision and regret it, maybe. But I don't think we should ever regret making that decision because we did the best we could under, we had all the information at our disposal and we worked tirelessly to come up with what we thought was the best decision. And that was the moral dilemma. And the worst decision was not to do anything. And we decided to make a decision knowing that was going to get criticized. And that's the hardest part is, as an example of a moral dilemma, it's like, we just want everyone to be happy, but we can't. And it, it yeah. fucking sucked. Yeah. I, and I think, you know, for, for us, I think, you know, it's funny because people say you're a big company and therefore you should be able to maybe, you know, one criticism I could hear is, you know, you should be able to do this. But in some ways, like being a large restaurant group, if you're not Darden, who I saw has a billion dollars in the bank, which blows my mind. Uh, or if you're a tiny group where your corporate overhead's small, maybe you don't have that many managers, uh, you can keep that team on. Our corporate payroll, uh, you know, across all the restaurants, everyone is over half a million dollars a week. And so we paid out a, at least a week of severance to all of our teams. So that's over $500,000 that went out uh, our doors with zero revenue coming in. And even that was, you know, a real conversation, right? Can we afford to do that? How does that affect how long we can exist as a company? But the idea that we can continuously pay out half a million dollars every week without income coming in uh, is, is just, in some ways, the size hurts, right? Like, in some ways, if we were smaller, if we were more nimble, maybe we could make better and smarter decisions for our teams. But I think people see size as a virtue in a lot of ways, uh, size in a restaurant group, if you don't have the income uh, and you just have, uh, you know, payroll, uh, rent, utilities, et cetera, uh, it actually hurts. And so, you know, I think at the end of the day, like I will always make the decision that veers on the side of providing for our teams. And if that means having to go out and ask other people, uh, regulars, fans uh, that have the disposable income and are willing to make that uh, bet on our teams, which, you know, I'm so immensely grateful for that, that, that Momofuku can mean that much to someone. I would take that over not doing anything uh, potentially because of criticism. Um, that to me is, is just not, I would rather be on wrong on that side than wrong on the other. You know, what was the, can you give me a sense of the employees or, or the reaction were there when you decided to close? Did you get a sense of how people within the company felt about that first decision? 
Uh, yeah. And yeah, I, I think it's also city to city, right? Like we were seeing what was happening in New York and, and we made the call. And I don't think anyone in New York was was completely surprised. Right. I think everyone was kind of ready to make that make that call. Um, I think as you move further afield to, let's say, L.A., like Major Domo, the night that we closed down had over 250 people on the books. They had a BEO for a birthday and they fairly were like, what? Like things are fine, right? Like people want to come in. Um, and so I think, you know, obviously as each city is on its own path and, and this is affecting everyone differently, um, you know, Toronto, I think is another great example. When, when we made the decision to close down, uh, it was maybe a week predating uh, any sort of governance uh, and guidance from, uh, from Canada. So, um, I think as the longer this stays closed, the worse things get. Uh, unfortunately, it's kind of validating some of that. I think early on, um, just based on where you were, you, you, it was harder to see uh, uh, what this could be or, or what it could turn into. Um, I think it's really interesting, like, you know, Momofuku and you have a perspective on how this is all playing out in multiple countries and cities around the world um and you just alluded to it a little bit can you give me a little bit more of a taste of of what it's like like uh, playing this out in australia canada las vegas los angeles and new york at the same time yeah it, and and as i said too like working with different partners uh who are boots on the ground so um it's been also super interesting and, and obviously monitoring how the local governments are responding um you have you know in canada uh you know 75 percent uh wages coming from unemployment insurance which is incredible and you know obviously we're, we're so thankful for um you see obviously what the united states government is which my criticism of is that by treating it as a one-time payment, it's really not flexing for the duration and severity of this right now. Um, you have uh, Australia, where we're working, uh, where the government's issuing stipends to businesses. So we're working to figure out uh, that as well. Um, and then in uh, Vegas, I mean, Vegas just being a really interesting beast of itself, right? You had a uh, uh, occupancies obviously dipping dramatically, um, and you know each casino kind of changing and uh, opening and closing on their own timelines. So um, you know, and and you have even within Vegas, you have the Sands uh, where Major Domo uh, Meat and Fish is in the Venetian, uh, keeping on a hundred percent of their employees, uh, which we're immensely grateful for. And you could have another casino down the street who's you know terminating. Uh, uh, everyone. And so our struggle is really trying to be the intermediate there and saying, you know, maybe uh, our partner wants to terminate our GM and exec chef because they don't see the value. But, you know, at Momofuku, they're our lifeblood, right? They're our connection to these cities or the connection to their hourly staff, they're the connection to the building. So, uh, you know, some of those employees we've taken on uh, ourselves and are paying uh, directly just because their value to us is so immense that uh, we can't imagine not. So really trying to kind of play, you know, all these different pieces, um, you know, unfortunately, I think has been a lot of time, but hopefully, uh, you know, equating to some better results um, uh, in, in the end. Um, what is the day to day for you? Like, I mean, what, I, I know that you and Dave are on the phone all the time and, and talking to various people, but but talk to me about what's happening right now in, in terms of Momofuku and, and what you're up to. Yeah. 
Uh, I, I think it's it's like a, an interesting mix of defense and offense. So, uh, you know, obviously, you know, we had some people on our team spending all of their waking hours working on these PPP loans. Um, so getting those in last week, uh, being prepared uh, for what that looks like, uh, conversations with landlords over uh, our inability to pay rent and what does that look like and, you know, uh, business interruption insurance and what's happening on that front. Um, and then, uh, but trying really hard, and this is the hardest thing to not lose track of offense because at the end of the day, that's what's going to get us back open. That's what's going to allow us to provide for our teams and rehire and, and do everything we want to do. So, uh, you know, we uh, basically have empowered, uh, which I'm super excited to see what comes from this. Uh, we've actually went out to all of our GMs, exec chefs, uh, and basically said to them, like, tell us what you think the future looks like. What does your business model look like in a world where maybe you're allowed to have 50% occupancy? Maybe you're not allowed to have anyone in your store. Maybe, you know, uh, if you're co, uh, you know, Sean Gray loves donuts. Maybe you're an all-day cafe and you're not a bar anymore. Like, it, it's kind of empowering our teams who are on the front lines, who know better than anyone where their capacity to grow and change and evolve is and giving them kind of the, the tools to run with it. Uh, and then we're all going to review together and then kind of piece together a new normal. Um, because I think we all feel really strongly we're really far away or maybe never uh, to getting back to the traditional models that, that you saw in New York. Um, I, I think that, you know, Dave has, has sort of characterized his outlook on the future, I mean, starting with when restaurants can first open again, even pre-vaccine, I think he characterizes his own attitude as, as doom and gloom. Um, where, where are you, generally speaking, on, on the future of not just Momofuku, but the whole industry? Yeah, I mean, I, I I guess what I would say is that I when Dave says restaurants are dead in their current form, I agree. I guess what I think, and I, I think to Dave's credit, uh, he equally agrees, maybe uh, just smaller percentage of, of uh, time spent on, is that, you know, anyone who works in this industry is extremely resilient and has had to kind of react to conditions. And so I, I think restaurants are are dead in their current form, but that's not to say that the, the people that make them possible aren't capable of adapting how they do things, what they do uh, to fit a new mold. So I think you'll see uh, those same talents and teams, but they'll have to greatly adapt uh, where their income comes from, um, how they operate, what are their SOPs. Um, you're just basically rebuilding from the ground up uh, what your model is. And, you know, I, I have immense trust in our teams, uh, you know, and, and, Dave, you know, obviously has has dipped into this, uh, you know, whether it's with Ondo or, um, you know, even Peach Mart for us was a little bit of an experiment of like, you know, what does this look like if you're not a straight straight uh, restaurant, but you're starting to integrate, you know, grocery and all of that. All of these were kind of trying out different markets to see, you know, what does that future look like and and how can we play with it? Yeah, can you can you both talk a little bit about about that? I mean, you you had Ondo and and maybe give us a sense of what these references are Ondo and Peach Mart and it feels to me like right. you you both sort of saw some sort of writing on the wall long before COVID and, and were dipping your toes into these other things and um you know what were you seeing in the industry that led you to feel like you needed to start exploring these alternative avenues right you know we started Maple almost seven years ago and Ondo six years ago and I don't know why, but I guess I was right. Like, I think I'm right on timing on things in the industry a lot. I'm just 
I'm right on trends. I'm just wrong on the timing. And, and what were those? Can you tell um, us what those, what those businesses are? Or what? The growth of a restaurant cannot happen within the four walls of a restaurant space. And it just was very clear to me that wasn't going to happen. There were a variety of factors going against uh, the bottom line increasing. And without a bottom line increasing, it's hard to have benefits for your employees. And we wanted to always be a benefit-driven place first and foremost, if you can, as a restaurant. And I wanted to explore before it became like a thing. Like It was very clear to me that delivery was going to be the new norm, not just in New York, but America. Um, all you have to do is look on Asia. Tiffin in India, you have Bento and Dosirak in Japan and Korea, respectively. You also have extensive delivery in China, which is like at a whole different level. And I was like, it's worth exploring, you know, obviously with the gig economy and, you know, the the smartphone, how that changed everything. I was like, oh, we're going ahead to a model. And I wanted to explore what that looked like because it seemed to me just looking at other parts in culture, the middle was going to get squeezed. And again, my barometer for, for the business, weirdly, has always been fashion. And I saw how Zara and H&M were really just disrupting everything. And they did it because they were like, fuck it, we're not going to play by the rules as everyone else. And, and, and I was like, man, like, there's got to be a different way. How do you explore that? And I know over the next 10, 15 years, we were going to head to this model. You just have to look in China, all right? And it was going to be that way. No question in my mind. And it's still going to be that way. And I knew that the 30% delivery charge that at the time was Postmates or Uber Eats or Seamless or Grubhub was an indentured servitude model. And it's the same thing. Like, you know, this was around at the time too. Like, uh, this is a a tangent, but most news places and uh, most uh, newspapers around the country were losing money, right? Who was making money? Google. Right. So I was like, wait, why should us as restaurants do the work for someone else to benefit? Is there a way that you could be a fully stacked, fully integrated restaurant? And the main reason I wanted to explore that was it was possible to help restaurants without getting fucked. And and that's what I wanted to see. And um, we don't have to talk too much about delivery, <laughs> please. Uh, I can talk a month about it. But it was clear to me that's where the future was going to be. It's still going to be the future. I just, it was going to happen at such a glacial pace, no one was going to norm- realize that it was happening. And when there's a vaccine and we go back to living normal lives as close to pre-COVID-19, we're still going to have delivery. We're still going to have takeaway. I don't know for sure how many people are going to go back to restaurants in a meaningful way like they used to. So we all have to adopt some takeaway, some delivery, but we don't have to do it with the current forms of delivery. Yeah, And I think, I think if we all agree, right. they need us more than we need them. And I, that's where I feel like there needs to be solidarity on that end. Because this 30% shit, this ghost kitchen shit, that's, we're signing up for medieval servitude. Well, and, and I think that you know, delivery used to be a convenience, right? So the restaurant would pay what it needs to pay. The customer would pay what it needs to pay. But in the current model where that's all restaurants are allowed to do, and if we're being deemed an essential service to do that, then the 30% makes absolutely no sense because it's just your cost now of doing business. And that's unsustainable. And I think to Dave's point about delivery always being the future and this just expediting it, 
I think the demise of a lot of restaurants, which is going to happen, is once again, I don't think it's necessarily even COVID specific. I think it's something that was going to happen that has just been expedited by this. So you can see rents rising and rising and rising in New York. And obviously, uh, you know, a lot of businesses were getting squeezed out, whether that's the, you know, even in 2019 with the addition of uh, the $15 wage, um, all of these factors piling up on top of each other, you know, some of which were extremely supportive of uh, from a, from a uh, employee standpoint. But if you don't adjust your model to accommodate for that, if you're just operating your business the way you always have, and you've increasing rents, increasing labor, uh, there was going to, something was going to blow and I think that what you're going to see is a lot of restaurants that close that were hanging on uh, um, that, you know, if it wasn't this year, it might have been next year's rent hike or the one after. So uh, I think it needs to be a fundamental kind of readjustment, not only to delivery fees, but also the model and that restaurants operate. Um, because I don't think even with 50% capacity, you forget 50% capacity. I think that people will self-mandate that even if it's not coming from the government, just in terms of how many customers pre-vaccine even want to come in. Uh, the numbers just don't work. They just fundamentally don't work um, unless you were already hitting 20, 30, you know, percent EBITDA to begin with, you can survive. But if you were hanging on with 10, if you were hanging on with 12, uh, it's just, it's, it's not going to work, at least uh, in, in major metropolitan areas. Just so our audience understands completely, I know there's a lot of people who are familiar with this, but the, the 30% that you two are referring to is the flat charge of the delivery services are charging to restaurants on on every sale right they're taking 30 percent of of all delivery sales um and you know i saw i saw a headline about you know all these bay area based tech delivery companies who have refused to consider dropping that fee even just during this moment and it does it feels completely uh unsustainable fuck them (laughs) um that's right i said fuck them (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, it it seems crazy to me that, that they depend on you entirely and here in your time of greatest need, they're, they're refused to, to suck any less blood. Karma, karma is going to come for them. Don't worry about it. Um, March, I wanted to ask you, I, I, I know that in this moment, the hardest thing and the thing that's keeping you up at night is, is how to take care of, like, is the defense to take care of, you know, your family, the Momofuku family. Um, but I, I was also wondering about, you know, the, the future plans you guys did have before this crisis and if there's anything that was coming down the pipeline or things that you're working on or, or parts of the restaurants that feel like you have to put on the back burner now that, you know, you're maybe (laughs) sad to let go. I know we've talked a lot about, um, Buffets in the past, for instance, which feels like we're not <laughs> the greatest casualty. Uh, yeah, um, that's funny. That's very, very true. Um, uh, so I would say that uh, you know this diversification is something that we've obviously been working on for for a while now. Um, I I've been saying over the past couple of weeks that there's a reason that Nike and Lululemon and all of these stores can pay their retail employees while closed, and it's because it's a fraction of where their overall income comes from. So restaurants need to adapt, in my mind, to a similar model where their in-store sales is not everything. Uh, it basically just leaves them extremely exposed to, to potential, uh, uh, whether it's COVID or the next thing that happens, where I think, you know, there's, there's pretty much an agreement that, that this isn't a one-time event. So uh, we've been working uh, a lot on uh, 
consumer packaged goods, just things that you can use in your home. And we launched uh, these season salts uh, in October of last year uh, and, you know, are already just in production for the next round of that and the next round of products. Um, And, you know, I I think we saw that Dave has been saying for the past year that uh, I think you're seeing a a lot of increased cooking at home, regardless of of what's happening right now um, uh, with with, uh, coronavirus. Um, I think it's just a trend towards that as people, this the next generation is the most educated when it comes to food. They are interested in, you know, owning Szechuan peppercorns. They're interested in, uh, in knowing the difference between, uh, where their black peppers coming from, like all things that were inconceivable 15, 20 years ago. So we wanted to tap into that and kind of, uh, introduce our flavors and things that we use in our restaurants to home cooks. Um, so that's in progress. We're obviously trying to figure out now, knowing that that's possible and knowing that we can do that without having our staff go into a restaurant uh, and interact, how do we use that then to benefit our teams? Because it's another way that we can potentially provide uh, uh, without risking um, our teams uh, on the ground. So uh, that's something that we're looking into. Um, it's just Peach Mart, which is was kind of our version of a Korean or Japanese uh, convenience store. Uh, and, you know, both had prepared food as well as, you know, our favorite selection of uh, snacks, uh, instant ramen, all of this. So, you know, I, I still believe strongly in that, in that you're going to see kind of more crosses of, you know, you're already seeing um, uh, some restaurants where selling vegetables, CSA boxes, wine, etc. cetera. Um, I think you'll see more of that that model. So um, we're just, you know, I, I don't think Dave and I ever have looked at Mofuku as purely a restaurant group. I think we've always seen it as kind of where people are eating and what people want to eat is how we're going to evolve. And whether that's uh, delivery efforts, whether that's uh, packages and foods that you can get at home, um, we're agnostic, I think, on the platform. I think it's just about, um, you know, giving people good options um, where they are. And if that can't be in our restaurants, whether because of uh, coronavirus or just uh, whatever, you know, uh, happens next, you know, we'll be there and, and, and provide. But I think, Chris, the, the thing that we're trying to reverse engineer is in the event that we can reopen, whenever that is, how do we be prepared, right? So, so like, I've been spending a considerable amount of time trying to figure out what are the givens that we are not, the, the, the answers to questions that are not being like worked on right now that we know are going to have to be answered. And, and a lot of those are just the very practical things about masks and protective gear and standard operating procedure in a COVID-19 world. And then the next thing is, okay, if we have that, because I'm just trying to get everything aligned, how do we hire everyone back? And, um, I don't have an answer right now. You know, it's, it's really hard because, uh, you know, you talk to other chefs right now and the, the stimulus plan is you can get a loan if you hire everyone back before June 30th. I don't know any restaurant that's going to be able to hire everyone back by June 30th. And if the government doesn't make a change in this, you're going to have a real problem because certainly we will hire every single person back. But the worst thing that can happen is we have to lay people off again. And uh, that has to be addressed. It is a giant concern. And I know that the, the Save the Restaurant Coalitions, there, there are many, but the Independent Restaurant Coalition is addressing that as, as, as a main focus of their movement. So, um, you know, to, to the employees listening, we're, 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 we're doing everything we can to, to get things back to normal. But the hardest thing to understand and to accept is we have no control of this virus. 
you said it, Chang, I think every restaurant would love to hire or intends to hire every single person back. And, and, and these loans and aid are, uh, are, I mean, Marge, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of them are, are dependent upon restaurants uh, and, and small businesses hiring everybody back. But if business is simultaneously going to be limited, um, both naturally and artificially, like how can, how can you do that without altering your business completely or, or the government relaxing that somehow? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I've always said that I think restaurants, sure, there are going to be some restaurants that do not reopen. I think most restaurants are actually going to fail in the couple months coming back because whether that's they've hired back their entire workforces, their rent hasn't changed and they're still paying uh, a rate that is now ridiculous for the amount of business that they're, they're doing. Um, you know, and you're going to think whenever we open restaurants, we don't go every meal period off the bat. We always start with, you know, maybe we'll start with lunch and we'll be closed on Sundays. And then as we figure things out, we'll layer in more services. Uh, you're not going to see restaurants day one be able to run, you know, schedules seven days a week, every meal period. So I, I think it's, it's honestly like the weight of all of your utilities, your rent, uh, your payroll, your unchanged rent, all of that is going to be the thing that suffocates uh, the business, not this intermediate period uh, that's forgiven between, uh, you know, now and June 1, or sorry, June 30. So uh, that's the scary part. And, and there's not really any legislation coming out for after June 30th, right? And that's where, you know, I would love to see percentage rent where, uh, you know, as these businesses, especially if there are mandates, things like 50% capacity, then you should be paying your rent based on what you can do in your business. And it can't be fixed anymore because our controls are no longer fixed. We're subject to what's happening with the virus. So uh, there just needs to be more forward thinking, uh, forward movement on um, how restaurants and businesses survive. And it's not just restaurants. I don't think Momofuku has any more rights to survive than any other business, any other small business that's you know owned by a family, et cetera. So how are they going to survive and, and what provisions are going to be there that they are able to ramp up in the way that naturally consumer trends will, um, as opposed to this arbitrary date where everything's supposed to be back to normal. And, and Yang, you know, I've been I'm saying this too, but you know, I think it, it, for anyone that's listening, this is a conversation I'm having with many other people in this industry. I think our priorities need to be sort of shifted a little bit. I think to, there's a lot rightfully to save the industry. Um, and I think a lot of people are still traumatized trying to get to late February 2020. That shit's never coming back. And yes, we're going to lose restaurants. That's a given. Um, I think, again, until there's a vaccine and a working therapeutic, there's no need to rush trying to get anything reopened. Our number one priority needs to be the people that have been laid off. Quite frankly, who gives a shit about restaurants right now? Yes, we're spending, I think, a chunk of time, but it's not the majority of the time. The majority of the time is like, what are we doing? And it's not within this conversations that we're having constantly. It's talking to other business leaders, a lot of politicians, government elected officials, telling them, hey, we need better help. We need more funding. You guys need to look for undocumented workers. All of these things are just crucial to the health of this country. And I sound like a fucking politician. It's driving me crazy because it's just like a repeating theme talking to every single person being like, yes, we need to take care of the givens for the restaurant industry. 
But right now, the thing that we can control is taking care of the people that need help the most. So I, I think that that's, that's been the overall message across all of these coalitions and restaurants right now who are on social media sort of explaining the predicament that uh, everybody is in right now is the general public doesn't understand how close to the edge restaurants live, how tenuous the hospitality industry is, and small business in general in America, how fragile um, and, and like I said, close to the edge people live. But let me ask you this bluntly, because I think this is the question um, that has arisen with regards to Momofuku. You know, Marge, I think there's a perception that because you're a bigger group, because you have a lot of restaurants, because you're very visible, you're not close to the edge. That you and Momofuku are somehow not a restaurant business like everybody else. Can you give me a sense of, you know, how true or not true that is? Like, how how different is Momofuku from other, you know, from the, the mom and pop who's just one restaurant? Sure. I, I'm, I would never sit here and say that that we're in an, the worst off position. I don't believe that at all. I think we are lucky, obviously, to have uh, a team of people that, you know, for example, going through the PPP, the loan process, uh, you know, we have a, an accountant, we have people that can kind of guide us through that and, and look for the best kind of advantage to using these services. And I'm extremely lucky to have uh, to have that. Um, we are extremely lucky to get to keep on our exec chefs and, and GMs across the company, uh, even when the restaurants are closed, that we have the uh, income, and, or not income, but the the savings to do that. Um, but outside of that, um, you know, I don't think our business is very different than any other restaurant business in terms of what comes in and what goes out, right? Um, you know, as I said, the $500,000 a week in payroll, um, you know, our rents, everything, you know, we're scraping on the same margins as everyone else, right? Just at a much larger scale. Uh, we haven't cracked how you hit you know, 30% EBITDA across the board, you know, you know, maybe you get closer to that on something like a noodle bar where it's a little more automated, but, you know, we have one-off restaurant concepts that we value because they're not that, right? They're expressions of uh, a, a chef or, you know, a region and, and they're not designed to be minting uh, money by any means. So I, I think we're very much on the same trajectory, just at a larger scale. Um, I worry infinitely more about, uh, smaller restaurants, uh, and, you know, more mom and pop that, that maybe, uh, you know, I know a lot of banks were turning away people that they didn't have existing relationships with. Right. So they couldn't even submit their loans. Like that's what terrifies me, uh, that you're basically, uh, excluding a group from these, uh, potential benefits that could keep them hanging on. So um, I would never sit here and say that we're in the worst spot, but I would say, you know, we, our economics work the same way as the restaurants. We're just, we're just larger and any money that we have gotten in uh, goes to building the next restaurant. So, uh, you know, Dave in the past took out a personal loan to build out a restaurant. So uh, all that dollars uh, is in a storefront, is in a business, is in something that is currently closed right now. Um, I wish, you know, if, if we had a Scrooge McDuck uh, a war chest of money, like, tell, I, I would love to have access to it. I mean, yeah, Ying knows, like, we're partners in the media. Like, you know how much I've been trying to hustle on this end just to make ends meet and get some. <laughs> I'm thankful, but I'm also like, it's been a shit position, but not a shit position. Because here's the thing. By talking about it, I'm like, oh, you sound like a fucking ungrateful fuck. It's like. There's no way to talk about it. All I can say is I wish 
it was easier for everybody. I know that we're in a better position than most, but it doesn't that because of that, that means we can't fuck this up. I feel like if you guys were just sitting on a Scrooge McDuck uh, money pool, uh, Ching wouldn't have me working so hard right now. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we just don't tell you about it, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're, we're running down on, on time here. I One of my favorite things, um, you know, in the pre-COVID world is is sitting in on meetings between the two of you and hearing you kind of talk about restaurants that you would like to open concepts you would love to see dumb things that you want to try service styles restaurant types um everything like dishes um you know i asked this a little bit earlier but like what are some of those things that you know those those pie in the sky ideas that you guys have had and and we're maybe planning on for the future that that feel a little far away right now like just so you know, I we can recall those those times when you know a buffet was was more of a possibility. Hmm. And what would... so I I would say I mean Dave, <laughs> besides buffets, I'd love to hear your answer to this question. But I I think what's crazy about all of this, and and the only silver lining that I can see is I think a lot of those realities are actually closer now than they were before. So things that we've been working on. Uh, which we think is that, you know, once again, the future and have always thought is the future is the integration of all these pieces together. So uh, whether it's, um, you know, using technology, you know, a cookbook has been a cookbook for the past, you know, uh, you know, maybe the cookbooks were revolutionized uh, in, you know, the 2000s where they became more narrative, all that. But it's still a book that you buy that you get and you flip open. And so, you know, we've talked about how does that, you know, start to integrate with things like, uh, you know, an Alexa or any sort of means in which, you know, your smartphone that you're using uh, when you're cooking now, as opposed to, you know, I, I think, you know, how do you basically my dream scenario, and this is the model that I think makes restaurants survive, is you have a restaurant, which is like the physical manifestation of, of everything, right? It is the ultimate example of, of what you're trying to do. Um, but then, you know, why can't you maybe get some of those ingredients, uh, some of those things at home. And then if you're cooking it, why can't you have someone from our restaurants telling you how to cook it or giving you kind of tips along the way or showing you what it's supposed to be like? So, um, you know, and then why can't to order those ingredients, you can't do it from your phone or you're looking at the video and you can just hit uh, a purchase. You know, I think that happens in so many other industries, but there's restaurants have always just been so much uh, removed, right? It's always been a brick and mortar first business. And how do you kind of take that and evolve it? And by, you know, evolving it, not have 30% uh, fees, but bring it into the, the technological age in a way that's sustainable and helps the restaurant make money, not taking it away. Um, I think that's the only way that restaurants survive in general um, is they can't just be one thing in one place. Um, how do you have that experience at home, have that experience in the restaurant, uh, and have all those things, uh, you know, lift each other up, um, rising tides, lift all boats, as opposed to one kind of taking from the other's hand. And that's why they made her CEO. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, we're, not, we're not there yet. <laughs> but, but come on, Chang, what, what is the thing you've had to shelve that you're sad you've had to shelve? No, no, no. I mean, like, I mean, no, no, it's not even shelling. It's like, this is where I get really optimistic. And I, I, uh, I've been really eating a lot of darkness and it puts me in a really bad place most of the day because I'm trying to sift through all of these horrible ideas and people are dying and people close to me have passed. And, um, I, I, I'm just 
trying to like eat all this shit because it's like maybe maybe the answer that we need is somewhere buried in it and it's not a good place to be but i tend to be pretty buoyant in it and i'm i'm searching and i'm searching and the one thing that i feel like is down there and it's just like a hunch i believe that we're going to be able to do something that better takes care of our employees because we have we're not bound by anything anymore potentially and so much of what's prevented us from doing what Marge said is because of legacy issues. And seriously, I was like, awesome, like not awesome, but like, fuck it, let's go. Let's do the craziest fucking shit. Let's believe in one another. And let's, if we fail, we fail. Guess what? Who fucking cares? But our desire is to build a company that can better provide for everyone. And we can only do that by taking some big fucking bets. And you know what? Again, I always look at everything as a blackjack table. The dealer shows ace and we got 16. We're going to hit. We're going to hit. And we're going to continue to have to hit. And hopefully we're going to win more hands than we lose. And that's exciting to me is like we're all on the same level here. Yeah. And and I would I would add to what Dave said. You know, I, I think there's going to be reform in the way that restaurants operate in a good way. Right. Like we look at it uh, if, if we're moving more towards takeaway, more towards delivery, more towards uh, these new forms, like the way tipped wages work now is so archaic. And it really doesn't allow for this new economy where you're going to have more blending of that. Right. Like we deal with all the time uh, labor law in terms of, you know, our restaurants like Co, where you have uh, our, our cooks serve our uh, our guests, the only way that we could really work out that model was doing a tip-inclusive model. And I think you're going to start seeing a lot more things like that, a lot more uh, pay-to-leave, a lot more um, uh, hazard pay, more, um, uh, you know, sick leave. Like, how do you basically treat people like essential workers that they're being deemed right now to be? And I think that that's going to be healthy for the industry as a whole. Um, and how we get there is all these kind of untraditional models. And, and the hope is, which, you know, I think Dave and I are extremely skeptical of, is that it's also going to convince people that they might need to pay a little more for food, right? Like to do this the right way for people to be paid the right way. Um, and to have these experiences, which maybe become a little rarer, uh, you're going to have to, you know, basically treat it that way. Um, and it's not a cheap convenience. Um, so we'll see is as do people have appetites for that? We don't know, but, um, you know, I, I think I think the current model doesn't work, and and now it's just kind of more exposed than maybe it typically was to people outside the industry, um, which will hopefully you know lead to change. Um, Marge, I know you have to go, but um, speaking of eating darkness, as as Dave put it, uh, <laughs> I, I got to ask at the end of each of these calls, like how's how's your quarantine eating eating life going? What are you uh, how are you how are you living over there? Uh, pretty, pretty decent. Um, I'm, I'm in my childhood bedroom. Uh, uh, last night we had Passover. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm pretty, pretty okay. <laughs> uh, you- I'm, I'm not quarantine cooking like Dave. Not yet. We'll, we'll see. I don't have a microwave. I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned. Uh, uh, I need eat that I don't have. Yeah. We all need more, more microwaves in our lives. Um, Chang, you got, you got anything else? Can I add one thing? This is like I've been thinking a lot. And, you know, Yang, you know, we've been talking to a variety of people. I actually feel pretty strongly that when we look back on this, 
this is going to be the time where the food service worker from every facet of the industry will be looked as a very important part of American culture, the world culture. And uh, this is, this is uh, unfortunately, a, a reckoning caused by a virus that's doing unknown damage. But I think that when it's all said and done, people are going to realize how important the food service worker is. First of you know, like not nearly as important as a healthcare worker right now. And God bless the nurses and the doctors and the EMTs. But I think that with everything we're saying, we're going to have government intervention, that it's going to not be partisan. And I do believe that if we had Rosie the Riveter in World War II showing the power of what women could do to the American economy, there's going to be some, mar- not marketing, but some symbol that's going to unify this industry of all the divisions that we've had, because we're not going to be able to get through this without solidarity. And I think that there's going to be something that shows that like cooks are going to have to enlist working for the government in some capacity. There's a lot of ideas, but I, I, I really believe that. I, I think that this is going to be the time where cooks have historically proven all we do is give. And this is going to be the moment that everyone fucking sees that. Yeah, I, I was like, I just want to add because I, I didn't mention it before, because uh, I completely agree with that. And uh, when we were, you know, making the the really tough decisions of who do we need to keep on, who's going to open these restaurants, I know I mentioned general managers and exec chefs, but when we were going through this process, there was a pool of people, and maybe it's prep cooks, sous chefs that have been with us since one six three, you know, First Avenue, the original noodle bar, and we were like, holy shit, for us to reopen. I, don't get me wrong. I love our GMs. I love our exec chefs, but those are the people that are going to like bring us back. They are the ones that single-handedly are going to make the difference of this process being brutal and it being a machine. And so, you know, we really looked at it and we originally kind of planned for when we were looking at budgeting, we were looking at timelines. Uh, you know, we, I think took the approach that most people are taking where you say, you know, we're going to keep, we're going to keep the top. Right. And I think when we actually ended up, uh, uh, having those phone calls, it was way more of a mix because the reality is that a lot of those people that Dave's talking about, that's the backbone of this industry and that's, what's going to make the difference. So, um, you know, we're we're extremely lucky to get to keep on uh, a lot of our 10 plus year employees that that are the reason Momofuku is what it is today. And I know a lot of people, I know me too, like I can't wait to like suit up and to get back in there in some capacity. But again, like safety is like the most important thing. But once we get the green light, we're going to go hard as fuck. <laughs> we are going to go so fucking hard. So I know people are, are like gearing up to go. And I know a lot of people on our team, but like, we gotta make sure our ducks align before we do this. And then, and then, Susie the Saucier will be on posters everywhere. Um, <laughs> that's good. That's a good one. That's that's the best. I've been thinking about a name all day. That's the main. Uh, yeah. All right, guys. That was the 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 too small to fail podcast with Marguerite Mariscal. Uh, we will. Uh, probably have her back on again as as Momofugu figures its way in this uh, COVID-19 world as we all do. But again, uh, thank you for the support and uh, we're trying our best. That's all we can do. And, um, you know, I never thought that we'd talk about the Bhagavad Gita and Arjuna as much as we have, but uh, I recommend you guys check it out and read it. It's a very short read, but packed with a lot of information. Um, this week, well, I think we're going to get to you a demolition man 
Bad Movies Podcast. It's not going to be called whatever we were calling it before. It's going to be called the Bad Movies. And um, we're going to get to, I hope, a conversation with Joe House and the podfather himself, Bill Simmons, on the movie Burnt about why I hate it so much. Anyway, stay tuned, everybody. Thanks for all your help and all your support in these times. And um, Restaurant Industry is going to need your continued help. More legislation is going to need to be passed. Please continue to speak to your congressmen, your senators, and support all the the charities out there. I know that everyone's in need right now, but your food banks, they're just uh, in dire need. So this is only going to get better, I think, if everyone continues to help other people out before themselves. So that's it, guys. Stay tuned for the podcast on Thursday. 